Hi, everyone. I'm John Strausner. And I'm Berta Alexander. And this is Break Some Dishes, an Imagine a Place production. We're looking to places where radical change and transformation are happening. We're talking to people who cross boundaries of their disciplines to use design as a tool to solve the world's most pressing problems. Let's break some dishes. Welcome, welcome. Akshat, we are, as usual, excited to have you on an episode of Break Some Dishes. I'm here with my partner in crime, Verda Alexander. Verda, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you. Very excited for our guest. Well, thanks for today. having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Let me just, we have so much we can talk about, um, Akshat. Verda and I were actually going round and round about how do we, how do we manage your body of work because you've done so much. Like, how do we not get overwhelmed by it? Which is hard, hard not to do. But uh, we're here today with uh, Akshat Rati, senior uh, reporter for Bloomberg News, right? Yep. And I actually found out about Akshat. I read a number of your articles, and really was kind of taken in by the topics and the material that you're, you're diving into. Um, and I reached out and you so graciously agreed to spend some time with us. So you have a deal here on Break Some Dishes. Remember our deal, Verda? We don't ever want to have somebody on who's smarter than us. I think we've broken that deal millions of times. And now we have somebody that looks better than us, way more professional. <laughs> He's got a, know. a little boot, a pop, what is that? A pop screen in front of your microphone and you're in a sound booth and what's going on? I know. <laughs> it's I, it's I good feel nobody like, can see him. <laughs> I already feel like we're in over our heads, Verda. I know. Oh, yeah. well, so, that's, anyway, that's how we like it, right, John? That's how we like it. That's how we perform best. Akshat has a PhD in organic chemistry from University of Oxford and your bachelor's in chemical engineering from the Institute of Chemical Technology in Mumbai. So Verda and I were talking about this, and we think it's very cool that one of the things we try to do on Break Some Dishes is, is bring the language of science and engineering and entrepreneurialism and those things into design. So you started out with organic chemistry and chemical engineering. How did you end up writing about climate? Yeah, I started writing as a hobby just because uh, it was something I found to be enjoyable, um, just being able to express myself. Uh, and this was back in college. And as you would do in college, you'd want to start things. And so there wasn't a magazine in the college at the time in Mumbai. And so I, I started a magazine and we used to design stuff uh, for print, uh, you know, using Adobe uh, Adobe tools at the time. And, uh, and, and, you know, writing was really the primary thing. But to be able to get that writing out to an audience, you have to go through this whole process and uh, I enjoyed that process, even though it's uh, it's a lot of effort to be able to do that. And I used to do that while I was studying for engineering. And then I really enjoyed chemistry. So I did a PhD in chemistry. 
I was about halfway through my PhD when I realized I didn't really want to stay in academia. And the option for me was to try and figure out whether I can turn my hobby into a job. And so that's when I started thinking about journalism. Initially, I started writing about science. I got an internship at The Economist, which is sort of a master's in journalism, having never trained as a journalist before. And then uh, when I joined Quartz, uh, which is another business publication, that's where I started writing about climate change. That's amazing. You've married your passion and your expertise and your academic studies into one amazing career. Annie has a great voice. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) So you're launching a podcast in a few months. That's exciting. Yes, Yes, it's going to be called Zero. And uh, the Zero, unsurprisingly, stands for Zero Emissions. And uh, it will be about climate solutions and how we scale them. And we'll look at it from every sort of way different angle, but we'll also follow some of the stories that many of my colleagues here are are working on. Some of them I'm working on, investigative stories, narrative stories. Um, Yeah, it's a, a, I I feel like there are now climate podcasts, but not very many that I would listen to every week. And I would like to make something that, you know, people feel like listening to every week. It's a tough topic, but I, Ah. I think it's not because the topic itself is hard so much as the impression people have about it is one of it being depressing or sad or something you don't want to listen to day in and day out but the reality is quite different yeah and we're we're similarly trying to look for solutions um recently focused a little bit more on climate change but we look at all kinds of problems and there's so many in the world today so many crises um but I think and what you just said, I think around designing solutions, I think we're, we're all in a sense designers. And for a longest time, I've been thinking, you know, designers have such a key role to play in solving for the climate crisis or any of these problems. But I've been reading a couple books recently as one I've got here called Ruined by Design, How Designers Destroyed the World and What We Can Do to Fix It, argues that everything around us is by design our capitalistic system, our political systems. Our, and so, yes, designers can help solve for these crises, but not if they keep asking the same questions. And I listened, I was listening to a podcast that you're on, My Climate Story, long time, well, long time ago. <laughs> the pandemic, it feels like tw- 2020 was 10 years ago, not just two years ago. <laughs> That's right. But pandemic years about- are different. I know, right? And you talked about, and I think this is probably what you love about what you're bringing to journalism, this this academic um, knowledge base uh, understanding, is that you said, once you know how the sausage is made, you know what questions you need to ask. And I'd love to talk about that, understanding that we need to ask different questions because we really need to make systems change. Yes, absolutely. I think this is... My bias as a person who is interested in science and technology, um, in how things work, that I find that if I'm able to understand how they work, then I will be able to tell people how they work, which is not always the same thing. Understanding something and being able to explain something equally well so that the other person understands it is not always easy. Um, And I think once you have an understanding, a, a slightly deeper level understanding of Um, a subject, a technology, um, uh, an event, 
then you're able to process it and um, make sense of it a lot better than if you just get the headlines um, because they don't tell you what's really happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think also, I mean, Verda, I don't know if you would agree with me, but engineering is design. Absolutely. It's, yeah. So it's really appropriate that with your engineering background or your science background, you know, that you're trying to tackle this this subject. It, it makes perfect sense to me. It's a design problem. It's an engineering problem, you know? Yes, I think a lot of the solutions to climate are, are technocratic, but they are going to be implemented by humans. And the decisions to implement them will be made by humans. And so I think there is this need, this gap between what the what people need to understand about the solutions um, that needs to be filled up so that those those design choices, those technology choices can be made in a way that is more informed, uh, more democratic, um, and longer lasting, because we also don't want people to keep changing their minds about which direction we are going in, because that kind of disruption is not very good for these longer term, long scale, very expensive solutions that we are going to have to put in place. So like John said, you've written so much. <laughs> we usually do our, our homework, our background check on our, our guests. And so I picked your most, I don't know if it was your, well, it was a week ago. So it probably wasn't your most recent article. You've probably written five articles since then, but it was <laughs> right. one that you posted on LinkedIn, not on Bloomberg, yes. but on LinkedIn. Yeah. And it was titled, How to Convert Public Support for Climate into Policies that Work. And yep. Definitely one of the problems that we've just discovered here in America is that our politics is broken and it is affecting our ability to do anything about climate change. And you use the UK as an example of how they even, they, they basically made it not a partisan issue somehow. Yeah, it is interesting in that like in 2020, more than two-thirds of Americans wanted government to do more about climate change. And nothing really has happened in the last two years. Uh, Very little progress. The same number, two-thirds of Brits wanted government to do more about climate in 2008. And that very year, they got the Climate Change Act, which, you know, from the perspective of how we run the world, laws are the, the design tools that we use to run the world. Yeah. And so once you put a good uh, structure in place, you see the downstream impacts. And since 2008, the UK has cut its emissions by 40%. Uh, and that's the fastest of any major economy in the world. And you needed that public support to be able to get to the point of having that design choice, the law being implemented. Um, and so, yes, you needed to make it a nonpartisan issue. Um, when the law passed, there were only five members of parliament uh, against it uh, in, a, in a parliament that has more than 600 members of parliament. So mm. there was a huge, huge amount of support for it. And that's why the UK has continued to double down on acting on climate. I think 
are, you know, and, and I have a hard time, you know, staying positive in this conversation because in the U.S., I, I think we have a majority of the people that want to see some regulation come into place to help us. Um, but man, the, uh, Akshat, there's so much money involved you know, the lobbying dollars, you know, I feel like our politicians are always going to be chasing the dollars. And I just don't know how we're going to break through that. Yeah, it's a problem in the sense that there is obviously politics is a short term uh, game in most democracies, because there's a finite term that people in power want to um, deliver some sort of promise so that they can stay in power for longer. Uh, but I would say that businesses are different in that sense. They are not democratic. You can't just go and decide what people on the street can always go and decide what Coca-Cola has to do. Um, but Coca-Cola has been around for a very long time and would like to stay around for a very long time. And while its leaders might come and go, there is typically at least in large multinational corporations, a longer-term vision for where things ought to go. And one of the things I've been um, optimistic about is that you, when you look at businesses, they get it. Even if politicians are not always uh, looking at the long-term, businesses tend to. And they initially said the right thing. Now they are starting to do the right thing. And that, I think, will help eventually move the money out uh, away from politics, stopping climate action to actually pushing for climate action. It just is going to be a messy path to that point. But the one business or one category of business that isn't doing a whole lot, I know John wanted to ask this question. Do you want to, do you know where I'm Go going, on. John? Yeah, I hear you, I hear you man. Yeah, you, uh, you've done yeah. a lot of research in this area and John wanted to, well, you get a little Akshat, you did some award-winning investigative uh, work on what's happening with with ExxonMobil, right? Can you talk to us a little bit ab about that work because I started reading those articles and before I read your articles, I had also read some other things about the fossil fuel industry and the amount of obstruction that they're creating. Um, to climate change uh, activism. And I'm curious to get your, having done the the amount of work into it that you have done, what's your take on it? And where, where, where do you, where, what are you coming away with after all that? Yeah, I mean, the specific story you're talking about is uh, we did a series of stories on ExxonMobil uh, at the end of 2020. And uh, the source of uh, much of those stories was some internal documents that we had been leaked uh, that showed Exxon's own projections for where its emissions are going to be in the next uh, five years. Which uh, are now, pretty depressing. <laughs> yes, I mean, that kind of information is very held very closely and tightly. And, um, you know, businesses do give forecasts for what they might earn this year, next year at best. Um, but they rarely, we don't know of any company that puts out an emissions forecast. They'd say they have targets and they would be reaching those targets, which uh, sometimes happens, but 
especially oil companies, they never tell you what their emissions are going to be. So we found that, and then that turned into a series of stories. But the background to it is that oil companies have to move uh, to a cleaner future through cutting emissions. And many of the European oil companies have made those commitments, and some of them are actually following through. They're cutting production of oil and gas because that's the that's going to be required if they're going to meet those ambitious targets. Um, in the case of ExxonMobil, at the time, it did not have uh, a goal to reach net zero by 2050, which is what many oil companies in, in Europe are doing. And uh, while it said it would be cutting emissions, what we found was it's actually going to be increasing emissions. Now, that was end of 2020. A lot of things have changed since then. Uh, you know, At that time, oil prices were depressed because we had started uh, you know, locking us, ourselves right. uh, down, whereas now oil prices are roaring because everything's um, you know, uh, trying to move away from the pandemic and people want to do all the things that they were doing before the pandemic. And they're telling so, us they need to produce more now. Correct. So so initially, when we reported to the stories in 2020, they said, oh, our projections have now changed, our price is likely to be low, we are not likely going to be producing that much. And of course, that's all changed now. They're like, well, our prices are high and we you know, would like to produce more. Although that said, American and European oil companies are still not going um, as quickly into oil and gas production as they did when last time oil and gas prices spiked. So they are recognizing that they can't make these long-term investments if there are going to be not enough buyers for that oil and gas in the future. One way to think about what they do is, you know, when oil and gas prices go high, they are able to reap uh, more profits. And that's clear. That's been uh, clear for the past six months, if not more. Uh, but what they do with the profits that they get tells us and gives us an indication of what their future is likely to be. So for a long time, they said we want to be cleaner, but then didn't invest in clean technologies and clean energy as much. They're starting to finally do that, at least in Europe. Mm. Um, if they get more profits, uh, you know, they also typically in higher price environments, they would go and drill for more oil and gas or at least start exploring for more oil and gas um, because by the time prices come down, they'll be able to tap into a new source and then profit from it. You know, most international oil companies aren't doing that much exploration. Instead, what they're doing is with all this profit that is coming, they're giving it back to the shareholders as dividends. So it's a different kind of an, different kind of an oil story from what we've seen in the past. Um, and partially it's because of the recognition that what's happening with climate change is going to not create as much demand for those products as there used to be in the past. Well, one more question. One more question on the oil companies, and then we'll move on to something a little bit more, uh, a little bit more uplifting. But, but in the articles that I've read um, that that you've that you were you were writing, um, there's a lot of investor frustration with with the reporting. Is that because investors? They want to report accurately because they think in time there's going to be a tax on the carbon and that's going to be a liability and they want to be aware of that? That's right. I mean, one big fight that I think is probably now won and over is that 
oil companies are now telling us how much carbon dioxide they have on their books, how much their own oil and gas production is leading to in greenhouse gas emissions. And that was not something that they used to say or share or disclose five or 10 years ago. So every oil company, at least every international oil company in, in Europe and America uh, is now disclosing that information. But that is still historical information. There is very little future-oriented information. And from an investor's perspective, if you were uh, owning stocks in an oil company, you would like to know what is happening to the company, not just right now, but what is likely to happen in the future, because then you can plan for your portfolio and what your portfolio's emissions are to be in a world where there is warming happening and more and more governments want to be bringing in policies to cut emissions, which may include a price on carbon, which is a direct hit on the business that oil and gas companies Okay. So you were saying earlier that you think businesses, companies, corporations are starting to do the right thing. But it does feel like the most important and the one of the biggest sector of corporations, the fossil fuel industry, really isn't. And they're really trying to protect their profits until the bitter end. And I think the Supreme Court decision is another example. I mean, really, um, with the EPA, I mean, really, that just comes down to, to money, how much it costs to operate your power plants if you're trying to operate them more cleanly. And so um, I guess... I don't know where my question's going. Like, what will it take to get the fossil yeah, what fuel will companies it take? on track? Gosh, That's the I question. Know. That's a good question. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we talked a little bit about political influence. We talked a little bit about how emissions disclosures and how investors are thinking about it. I think one other lever, and these are all different levers that we need to pull. We need to pull public support. We need to have policies in place, which will hopefully come from public support. Um, but public support is also important because the policies that come through, there need to be something that the public does um, accept as policies they would like, because again, there's that gap. But there's a third lever, which is technology. And that one, if... If we had to pick levers, people, policy, and technology, technology is the one that makes me the most optimistic because you pick um, pick a technology of your choice that is clean, green, and alternative to the fossil fuel world, and it's doing better than most people thought it would. That's true of solar. That's true of wind. That's true of batteries, electric cars. That's true of now, hydrogen. Um, and so... Large corporations are seeing those technology trends, especially fossil fuel companies, and they are seeing that that's the place they would want to go. And that this has got nothing to do with emissions, got nothing to do with uh, regulations or policies coming through. Just from a pure economic standpoint, that's where the opportunities lie for many, many large companies. Um, and so we are starting to see that shift. And you know, the war, as you're right, has caused fossil fuel prices to go up, and that's obviously leading to lots and lots of profits right now. But that is not the case in the long term. I mean, this war is not going to last the next 30 years. Yeah. Um, and yeah. so at some point, those fossil fuel prices will come down, 
and then we are back to that world where there were fossil fuel prices were lower. And even if they don't come down, what we do know is the price of green technologies keep falling. So the difference between the cost of fossil fuels and the and the cost of green technologies keeps getting bigger. And the bigger that is, the more people will adopt green technologies. I mean, Fatih Birol, who's the head of the International Energy Agency, um, just said uh, this week that just like the 1970s oil crisis caused energy efficiency and more fuel-efficient cars to become a thing, this energy crisis, which is quite deep and quite disruptive, is going to make people double down on green technologies. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, we just talked that, to... Yeah, oh, go sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. <laughs> we do this all we, the time. We're not quite in sync. <laughs> <laughs> if Verda and I ever came to an intersection of stop signs, we would probably sit there for 20 minutes going, no, you go, no, you go, you go. I was just going <laughs> to say, we talked to Brian Kahn a couple weeks ago, um, Akshat, do you know Brian Kahn? He's a climate I do, reporter. Yes. Yeah, okay. Um, he was he's great. And he said yes. the same thing. He's like, technology is, you know, is ready. It's like ready to save the day. We just need to pull that lever. I'm curious, is there a technology that you're leaning on? What, in your opinion, is that technology that's most ready to make the biggest impact? It can't be one because we need different technologies to do different things. I mean, one way to think about how you get to zero emissions, um, a good sort of shortcut is uh, to electrify everything. You try and convert everything that you have around you as much as possible to only using electricity. So if you're heating your home, don't burn natural gas, use a heat pump. Uh, if you're cooling your home instead of an air conditioner, use a heat pump because the heat pump can do both heat and cool your home. Um, same with your car. If you're using a gas-powered car, convert to an electric car. Um, you can start thinking about um, uses of electricity in things you probably don't have control over, but uh, industry does. And so you use uh, electric arc furnaces and steel industry which uh, use a lot of renewable electricity to be able to do their job instead of burning coal. And so that's one rubric where you try and electrify everything. Now, obviously, electricity comes from many, many sources, some of them clean, some of them dirty. So the next step is to decarbonize electricity. So you try and build out solar, wind, batteries, uh, geothermal, nuclear, all these carbon-free sources that we know how to build and we know how to build at scale. But as you clean up the electricity sector, all the objects that were consuming electricity start uh, not producing emissions uh, through the use. Um, and then once you've done those things, then you have to do the harder stuff. So you'll have to find ways to convert um, industries like cement into clean industries. Cement is just a chemical process that produces carbon dioxide, regardless of whether you use fossil fuels or not, because of the chemistry of calcium carbonate converting to calcium oxide, which is limestone going to uh, become cement. And so you have to capture some of those emissions. So you're going to have to scale up carbon capture technology. Um, you might also need uh, green hydrogen. So green hydrogen can be used for many, many different purposes, uh, but it can be used as a store of energy. So you have lots and lots of sun, say, in the summer, you can store that into hydrogen and then use it in the winter. So that's another way to, to um, ensure that you have an option uh, rolling around. Um, and then 
there is going to be need for actually removing existing emissions in the atmosphere because we've been leaving this task for so late yeah. that we'll have to reverse some of the damage that we have caused. And so there's technologies to, to remove carbon from the atmosphere, which again are sort of getting ready. They're there. There are some small startups doing things. We're going to have to scale all of those things together. So there isn't one technology. You're going to need all of them, but there is a plan uh, that we have on how we can get there. Sounds that's, hopeful. I just hope that that's we so can. Funny. Yeah, I just hope the green technology can get up to speed quickly enough, and that the financial sense for it gets companies to well, get behind it's it. It's funny. I mean, one said, way to think about it is like you. Now we all use smartphones, and we probably can't imagine how our life would be without one. But in the early '90s, before mobile phones even became a thing. It wasn't like we sat down and we dreamt up like, oh, I mean, yes, there were some science fiction writers, but it wasn't like there were people like the three of us talking on a podcast saying, we hope one day there will be a smartphone that will be able to do all these things for us because without that, you know, our life would be miserable. Well, we don't know how these technologies will evolve. We know there's a direction to them and we know that they can scale We've seen them happen again and again with computers, with batteries, with electric cars. Um, and so I think it's about being able to put all that together um, and and have a, have a direction for it. But then, um, yeah, you don't know how quickly you'll get there, but that's, that's the task in front of us. What were you going to say, It's funny because, well, because you said that's so hopeful, and, and I was about to say that's so overwhelming. <laughs> I, what's your <laughs> advice? I'm just curious, Akshat, you know, if you're a consumer like, you know, Joe Public, what can they do? I think it's it's odd to think of it as overwhelming. You know, one of the analogies I find very interesting is when you walk into a forest around the areas you live in, you, and if you've done it a few times in the past, you probably know the types of trees that are around. You probably know a few species of birds. You probably know you know, some fish if there's a water body. You know their names. You know how they look. You might even be able to tell their uh, you know, calls. Uh, you might be able to tell without seeing one that there's something around. We have this understanding of the nature around us texturally, we have it culturally. We don't have that for our modern world. You may know if you've constructed your home, what are the materials used, but most people don't. You don't know there are different types of cement, as it turns out. Uh, you don't know what is inside your smartphone, what is inside your battery in the smartphone that's enabling you to do all these exciting things. We know how to operate them, but we don't have the same appreciation for the everyday things that are technological that are enabling our life. And so if the forest doesn't feel overwhelming, I don't think modernity and where we need to go with the climate future needs to feel overwhelming. It's just a it just should be an acceptance of what our life is going to be and why we need to think about it. Previously we didn't have to think about it. Now we have to think about it. That is the only additional part in in our existence today. And there is no way we can't think about it because climate impacts are everywhere all around us. And so you cannot ignore them. 
And when you can't ignore them and you have to think about them, you might as well think about the solutions and what to do about them. I think that was really well put. I, I love the, the the concept that if nature doesn't overwhelm you, why should the why should the man made environment overwhelm you? Um, that's that's a really good point. And I think from a design perspective, Verda, our industry, you know, is struggling to find traction as well. I think that's one of the biggest frustrations that activists have in in the architectural building industry, design industry, right? Yeah, yeah, and I did. I when I said that's hopeful, I was being a little facetious, I suppose, because I, I think technology is great, but we can't be a little, we can't be too over reliant on it. It doesn't solve for some of the other issues that have have ultimately caused climate change, right? Like the inequity, our uh, throwaway culture, our consumerism. If we continue to consume the way we're consuming, we're just going to need more and more and more and more technology, right? And um, and the disconnected aspect of, to nature that we have in our modern lives, I think, is contributing to climate change as well. And I think that that not only does tech, we have to address tech, technology and the solutions that are possible there, we really have to look deep at our systems, our our societal systems, our cultural systems, and how we interact with each other and, and change that as well. And I think that's, that's the real challenge. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is no way technology, as I said, is the only answer. You have to pull all these levers. But in the levers that we do have, technology is one that's ready, as Brian said, um, and can be pulled. The others, not so much. Public support is patchy uh, in different parts of the world. You know, in Europe, there is great public support and that translates into policy. In the US, there is not great, but growing public support, but that doesn't translate into policies. So yeah, it's one of those levers that you pull. You can, with the climate problem, like with many other problems, it's not just the climate problem, but with the climate problem, there isn't a silver bullet. I right. mean, even with the pandemic, you know, vaccines aren't a silver bullet. We have vaccines now, and yet cases are rising. And so you have to think, think more systematically. Um, and so, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, technology is, is the one that makes me more op optimistic because of the direction in which it's going. Um, the others need a lot more work. Um, and they're, they're messy work because they involve not just molecules, but people. You edited a collection of essays that were written by young climate leaders. And um, I'm curious, what was your takeaway from that? People probably will recall that, um, you know, Greta Thunberg sort of became a, a star climate activist uh, 2018, 2019. Um, you know, she was really building up this momentum of people recognizing how much um, how big this problem is and how much needs to be done and that there are students who are willing to take on the baton if the adults wouldn't. And um, that was when, you know, the biggest protest that happened uh, was in September 2019. And that's when my book editor was like, hey, wouldn't it be nice to actually hear from the people 
who are behind these protests because yes, we get a few characters um, in the media, Greta being one of them, and then they they are the only stories that we hear. But but because these protests are happening everywhere in the world, surely there are other stories. And I'm like, of course, that's you know that's the journalistic instinct. Of course, these stories are there. You just have to find them and tell them. So that was the source of uh, wanting to do that book. And, and that's why we wanted that book to be very much in the words of uh, the climate activists. Yeah. And we have people all the way from 11 years old to 28 years old tell their stories from 60 different countries uh, in the world. And really moving stories about experiencing climate disaster, about experiencing resistance in the face of trying to do something uh, in uh, facing just ignorance of the matter that there weren't enough people who cared about it and being able to explain the facts to them a real range of stories um the book was called united we are unstoppable yeah i love that title when did the book come out august 2020 so right in the middle of the pandemic uh, when every (laughs) protest had been stopped by the government uh and uh, all governments around the world so um i'm sure as you know protests protesters are back on street already i'm sure as more and more of them come back on street um you know people would want to know more of their stories and that's one place where they can find it yeah I love the title. So y- your experience editing all those stories, wh- you know, how did that leave you? Are you, are you optimistic for these, the, the these young climate leaders? Are they the, the ones that are going to find uh, or eradicate this inertia that we're talking about? I think they're definitely one force and a pretty powerful one because they are everywhere, Right. Children are everywhere. They are in the, the homes of the most powerful and the poorest. Uh, and luckily, they are getting an education in what the climate problem is and are um, more understanding of that problem because they're not attached to all the other baggages that come with being an adult who's lived for 30 years in a stable climate. Um, and so, and they are raising, I mean, many of the students talked about how. Um, them just talking to their teachers, the people in power that they see, their parents, um, cause those people to change their mind, cause the adults to change their mind. And I think they are a very powerful force um, and one that isn't going to stay quiet. Great. Let's hope I also not. think of the, um, the elderly. There's the 1,000 grandmas for the future. So I think there, I think these groups with a little bit of a different perspective, either the energy of youth or the wisdom of age. I have a lot to, to add to the, to the climate fight. Now, John, I can't remember if this was a guest that we had on and it said one of the problems with climate news and keeping it on everybody's top of mind, on everybody's radar, is that the whole idea of news is that it has to be new. Yeah. Oh, Verda, it was, it was Porter Fox. Oh, that's right. And I did just listen to an interview the other day where they asked that they asked somebody who's the biggest culprit to climate change, and I was expecting them to say the and I'm like yelling the fossil fuel industry, of course. But uh, <laughs> they said the media. The media is the biggest culprit. You may have a hard time believing that because this is all you write about. But the media, like Verda said a few minutes ago, doesn't keep it on the front page. Doesn't know how to keep it on the front page. Yeah, I mean, the media is, is, like, for a long time, I I got into science journalism because I saw that there weren't enough 
journalists who were trained in science who were doing the job and there were good science writing but it wasn't evenly distributed and um did cover all the subjects in the way that i thought should be covered and that's why i became a journalist um is the same thing with climate i mean in the past 6 years we've seen an explosion in climate journalism because there's clearly interest from the audience the media is blamed for not doing its job and that's good because you want to hold the media accountable but the media is also responding to other forces that might be public consumption of a subject that might be ad dollars going towards a topic uh there are all these other forces that are shaping what the media covers and so again it's very easy to take a big blob and say capitalism isn't that the problem media isn't that the problem politics isn't that the problem sure you can sit around and and make those blames and go nowhere i think if you want to really solve a problem you need to dissect it and understand where uh things need to change ah uh, that's the scientist in you talking that's, yeah. that's the engineer that's the design hey that's the designer Right? Yeah, totally. All right, well we always ask our guests what's next? What are you excited about? And we know you've got the podcast coming up in a few months. We look forward to hearing that. Zero. I also have a I also have a book coming. So, uh first draft of the book is in. I'm sure it'll be edited and refined and next uh next year in June, uh the book uh is called Climate Capitalism. Provocative mm-hmm. title. um which my book editor came up with and you know good as to her uh but it speaks to some of the points that we've talked about which is how do you bring people policy and technology together to be able to bring climate solutions and scale them and i have examples in many different countries india china america denmark the uk um where people have taken real things and made them into things that we will be using now and in the future uh to be able to cut emissions and get to zero. I love it. I feel like you're always looking for the hopeful solutions. Yeah. No, I was going to ask like we're, we're doing really quick thing. I don't want you to overthink it, but what is your most critical concern right now? What are you most worried about? That developing countries won't have the money they need to be able to tackle the problem which is both economic development and cutting emissions. Well, great way to end us on a downer, John. Damn it. You can count on me for the for, for something. I, yeah, that is a huge problem. That I mean, see, look at what's happening in Sri Lanka. Oh, oh god. Yeah. Some of it is the politicians doing, but there are other forces at work. Look at what's happening in Pakistan. I mean, emerging economies are going to be in deep 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 trouble in a financial um recession, but also they're going to be the worst hit by climate change so they get this double whammy of being in the tropics in the hot zone and having to deal with financial problems mm. that they don't have the capacity to manage all right and the challenge is that climate change affects so many things so there will be political unrest upheaval food crisis all kinds of things Okay. Yeah. Well, let's, and unless let's, we are able to tell the story of being able to connect those dots and say that one of the force it's not just that that politician did the wrong thing or that company did the wrong thing um but that there's this bigger problem which is also making things worse every so every in every so way that it's contributing to these changes i think this connected dots is going to be one of the hardest things that journalists but also storytellers and 
anybody who has an audience will have to do in the coming years. And that we need to be thinking globally around these solutions. That's what's so frustrating to me right now in America is that we're, we're just so self-centered here. It's kind of funny, right? Like we're talking about global problems now in the middle of a pandemic, but at the end of globalization, so to speak, which is, globalization has been happening and you know we've been consuming all these goods and services and food and everything from other countries because we found a way to move things around at a very cheap pace and that's rewired our politics and our economies and now we're going through a double global crisis in the pandemic and climate change and that's making us rewire our global economies to be a little more local to think a little more local to try and take care of our own surroundings and our own supply chains a little more. So you you get this, it's a weird place to be in where both global problems and deglobalization have to happen at the same time. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah, that's kind of weird. But that makes sense. Let's end it on a positive note, Verda. What what gives <laughs> you hope? <laughs> Aksha, that should have what been the it? question you asked. I know. Damn it. <laughs> I, hope is a funny word to me. Um, I think the the thing that I enjoy is knowing how things work. And once you know how things work, you can see that the future is not going to be as dark as it seems. Great okay. way to end it. Yes. Good. We need hope. There we, we got. Some. Yeah, we ended on on some hope. Thank God. <laughs> well, all right, this was Akshat, awesome. This Akshat, was thank you so much. Really thank incredible. Thank you for having me. This is fun. Looking forward to Zero in a few months and your yes. book, Climate Capitalism, coming out next year. Yeah, and exciting. your podcast. I look forward to, yeah. yeah, I look forward to feedback. The thing that I enjoy the most is knowing what people think when they read, listen. Okay. We can do that. Well, you'll know because they'll either listen or they won't. Exactly. <laughs> If you've enjoyed today's episode, drop us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To hear more trailblazers taking on the world's issues through the lens of design, visit us at breaksomedishes.com. I'm Verda Alexander. And I'm John Strasner. And you've been listening to Break Some Dishes. <laughs> <laughs>